0: Today's the last message in our series called I Love Church. And, you know, I really do love church. I love church for a lot of reasons. It, it's become my family. The, the, the people that I know best and love me best in my life, I found in the church. Not just this church, but the, the past churches I've served. Just wonderful community of people that I really feel are part of my family. I love the church because it, it helps me experience God. When I'm with you, I'm in a place where I can really experience God more so than I do oftentimes in my own private life. I love church because it reminds me who I am in Christ. I love church because of all the voices I hear in the culture, it's one that I I really trust is telling me the truth. And maybe the greatest of all, I love the church because it helped me find Jesus. The, The church helped me find Jesus. What's ironic is the church almost... Kept me from finding Jesus. As I told you last week, I grew up in a church that never preached the gospel openly, that made us feel like we were already Christians when we really weren't. And so I almost missed finding Jesus because of that. But one thing our church did was they offered an evening and they hired a man, $100 a month, to be the youth leader. And so he gathered kids from all over our community from the Lutheran church and the Catholic church and from the Latter day Saints church and from no church. And gathered them together in a youth group room at our Methodist church on Sunday nights. And it was through that youth group that I eventually came to know Jesus Christ. The reason I came to know Jesus was because there were leaders in that group that had something I'd never heard of before, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it was magnetic. I mean, I saw the joy. I I saw the passion and the love within them. and And I said, I want what they have. And I eventually gave my life to Christ like they'd done. But even more so, I not only wanted what they had, I wanted to do what they were doing. I wanted to participate in this bigger thing of helping other people come to know Jesus. And I have to tell you that finding Jesus is is an incredibly thrilling experience. But leading someone else to Jesus may be even more thrilling. When you see God using you to bring another person to Christ, it does something to your heart unlike anything else. What I want to talk to you about today is how the church equips us for our mission, our mission. Once you grab a hold of that, it just changes the whole focus of your life. Many of you have, have done things in your life where you feel like it's not that satisfying. There's got to be more. Or I want to do something that makes a more lasting value. I, I want to have a job where I'm making a contribution that's eternal well, I want to tell you, you don't have to be a missionary or a pastor to do that, but you do have to accept the mission God has given you. When I was in Arizona, there was a man who found his mission. His name was Don, and Don was a painter. He painted signs for a living, was excellent, very, very good at what he did, but he was also a very key person on our evangelism team at the church. And Don would often be asked what his job was, and he would say, I'm an evangelist. I share Jesus with people, and I paint to support my ministry. I mean, that's the mindset of someone who's on mission with Christ. And here's what happens, that when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he starts to do something in you that makes you realize all the good stuff you're experiencing is not just for you. God wants that for everybody. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can today to accept the mission God has for you to be part of what God is doing in the world and to be active in leading other people into that relationship with Jesus. And so I'm gonna ask you if you would pray to that end with me right now. Father, stir our hearts today that we would love the world like you love, that we would want to share what we have with those who don't have it, Father. And I thank you for what you've done in our lives, Father. May it overflow, may it spill out from our lives onto others. Fill us with a burning passion that will not rest until everyone knows you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to be in John um, chapter 4, but before I actually get there, I want to share with you uh, a couple um, verses that will set the stage for this. God so loved the world that he did what? Sent his one and only son. Sent his one and only son. Jesus was the first missionary, really. He sent his son to this earth as a missionary to bring people back to God, but then Jesus was going to go to heaven. And before he went to heaven, he said this to his disciples, found in John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I was the first missionary, and now I'm passing the baton to you guys. I'm sending you guys. You're on mission now. So they must have wondered, like, oh, well, how do we do this? And, and what do we say, and what do we do? I, we don't really know exactly what this looks like. Well, a couple weeks later, Jesus actually explained it to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this to his disciples before he actually went to heaven. He said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they were going to be witnesses. A witness is someone who can give testimony to something they've seen or experienced. And Jesus was saying, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be a witness. And here's where you're going to do it. You're going to start right where you are in Jerusalem, and then you're going to branch out into Judea and Samaria, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth And the reason you're going to do that is because I'm going to empower you through the Holy Spirit living in you that you won't sit still. I'm going to keep pushing you out to tell more and more people this wonderful news about me. And many of us have wondered, like, I don't know how to be a witness and I don't don't really know how to do it. That's for the trained people, the Bible college students, the pastors or the missionaries. But I want to tell you that every one of us is called to be a witness, starting where you are and branching out into ever-widening circles of influence. And I want to share with you a story that I think illustrates how we can do it. I mean, if, if we ever are going to learn how to do it well, I would think we ought to look to Jesus, to look at his example. And so John chapter 4 is an example of Jesus sharing himself with others called The Story of the Samaritan Woman. It starts here, John chapter 4, with verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, which means it was pretty hot. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? We're going to learn several principles, six principles in all, of how Jesus began to bring a person to faith. And it starts with this, to go where the people are, to go where the people are. Now, Jesus had just finished, if you you remember John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, and it's at night, and... And now they're getting ready to move on. They're going to head to Galilee. And directly on the path to Galilee is this region called Samaria. Now, usually Jewish people would actually skirt around the town. And the reason was because Samaria was looked down upon as a very bad place. See, if you go back in biblical history, there was a time when there was a kingdom. And and, and the king was Saul. And later David became king. And then after David, Solomon became king. There was one Empire called the nation of Israel. But because of the rebelliousness of the people, the kingdom split, and there became a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, over the course of time, was, was very wicked, very rebellious. And they were captured by the army of Assyria. And as Assyria took these people over, they blended their lives together, so they mixed some of their own culture in with the Jewish culture. And so these people became half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentiles, Samaritans. And they set up their own way of worshiping. They recruited their own priests who weren't the biblical priests from the tribe of Levi. They had their own priests. They, they did look to the Scriptures. They, they saw the first five books of the Bible as authoritative but not the rest. And they had their own place of worship instead of the temple that had been built by Solomon. They actually had their own temple at Mount Gerizim where they worship. So it was like two competing religions. But the Jews looked at them and says, we don't like them. They're worse than Gentiles because they're partly us, but they're not us. And they make us look bad. And so this, this fighting between the Samaritans and Jews was was century old by the time of Jesus. And most of the Jewish people says, there's no way we're stopping in the Samaria. But Jesus says, I'm stopping there. And he stopped not only in Samaria, he stopped at a well. I believe this is so important that if you're, Jesus believed, if I'm going to reach the Samaritans, I have to go where they are. They're not necessarily going to come looking for me. I mean, it's great that we have churches that invite people in, but honestly, we have to get out to where they are to let them know Jesus loves them. Most of them aren't going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I've been thinking about church. I think I'm going to go to a church. No, some do that, but, but most people come because someone inside invites them. Which means you have to be where people are. And a lot of you find that in your life, and it might be your, your soccer team or your school, or your college or your work, or your neighborhood, your gym. I mean you're surrounded by people. But Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now think about that. If, if salt is to have an impact on the meat it's preserving or flavoring, what does it have to do? It has to touch it. It has to make contact with that meat in order to be of any value. What about a light? Where is a light used? A light is used in a dark place. I don't need to turn a light on right now, right in this room, because there's lights on already. You don't need a light where it's light. You need a light where it's dark. And if Jesus says, you are the light of the world, what does it say? You've got to be in places of darkness at times to shine the light so people can see the light. In other words, you've got to be among the people. And, and what happens with us as Christians oftentimes is over the course of time, we cocoon ourselves with believers, with people who think and act like us. And over the course of time, we lose touch with, with being able to relate to people of the world because I go to three Bible studies and I go to church and I go to this ministry and, and I have just encircled myself with Christian people. Now, there's nothing wrong with having Christian friends and going to Bible studies. But I'm just telling you, you have to intentionally step into the darkness. You have to intentionally say, I need to plan to go to Samaria. I've got to to intentionally go to that with the mindset that I'm going into a dark place, but I need to make sure that I'm going to be light today or salt in this place. There are a lot of dark places in this world, and sometimes we look at those dark places and go, oh, they're so awful and so dark. Jesus would never want anyone to go there, and I'm telling you, Jesus loves those people in darkness. When you think of the worst place, the most sinful place, Jesus loves those people too. Did you know there's a, there's a ministry called Strip Church? And what they do is train women to go into massage parlors, brothels, and strip clubs to reach out to the women in those places. Now, if you knew someone in our church that did that, some of you probably judge that person and say, oh, they shouldn't be in that place, it's full of sin. But you know what, I just want to tell you, when you go into darkness, sometimes the people on your own side will criticize you. They did it to Jesus. This, this email came to Strip Church. Now, the name has been changed to protect this person, but she says, my name is Sarah. Everyone I know is in the adult industry. I'm a dancer and started dancing the day I turned 18, and I'm about to turn 22. I dance six or seven nights a week. I've done a lot of damage to myself since I've been dancing I've done drugs, I've done pills, I've sold my soul many times. I don't feel like a person. I'm almost, I'm almost probably completely numb because of all the damage I've done to myself mentally and emotionally by putting myself through all this. I don't know how to stop or how to get out. I feel like I'm lucky to be alive, and I'm actually having people tell me that many times. I want to get out of this life, but I don't know how, and the money is very addicting. Dancing is the only job I've ever had. I don't know what it's like to have a normal job dancing is my life. I hate it now, though, because it ruins me completely. But I'm stuck in it. I don't know anyone outside of this business, and I'm close to all the girls, and I can't imagine leaving them. I can't see myself not dancing, because if I stop, I'll have absolutely nothing left. This is all I do and all I know. I hope there is some way I can get help. I don't really know who this email is going to, but I hope I can get help. So please get in touch with me if you can help. Thanks. Does that make you realize that there are people in dark places who are looking for some light? And you know this, when Jesus went into those dark places, people criticized Jesus. They said, oh, he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. We know Jesus wasn't. He just associated with those people because he loved them. He wanted to reach them. And there will be times when you're trying to reach someone far from Christ that people will criticize you and say, that doesn't look good on your reputation. But I'll tell you this. If you have the choice and you are a witness for Christ to choose between saving your reputation or saving another person, you always choose saving the other person. Let the critics come and go. They criticize Jesus. I'm not saying engage in those things. Of course we know we don't do that. But love the people he loved. Go to where they are. He goes on, and in fact, I want to back up a little bit. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Here's another thing Jesus did. He initiated a conversation. He initiated the conversation. Very rarely will you have someone come up to you and say, hey, I feel lost. Will you tell me about Jesus? But you've got to initiate a conversation to get them talking. And I emphasize this because, again, this is not natural, we tend to gravitate toward, I will live a good life, and I will live the, the, the example of following Jesus, and hopefully they see Jesus in my lifestyle, and I, and I hope they do. I, ho- I hope that they see that, but we need both the lifestyle and the words, because if, if you only have words and you don't have the lifestyle, people don't think you have any credibility. But if you only have the lifestyle and not the words, you miss critical opportunity, I mean, you could be the kind of person that wakes up in the morning and you are happy, you are optimistic, you love being around people, you do what your, your boss tells you to do all the time, you, you eat all the food on your plate. I mean, you are extremely loyal to the people around you. I can say all those things about my dog. <laughs> my dog does the very same things. He wakes up happy, he's very loyal, eats all the food on his plate, <laughs> does what I ask him to do, but he never leads anybody to Christ. And you won't either unless you open your mouth. You've got to initiate a conversation. So so here's where we panic. Like, Pastor, I don't know what to say. I don't know the scriptures. I don't have the presentation laid out. Well, Jesus didn't either. Jesus didn't lay out a presentation, step one, step two, step three, step four. He just began a conversation. In fact, here's how Jesus began it. Uh, Would you give me a drink? Because a woman came there to draw water for herself. Could you give me a drink? Now, this was amazing because... In those days, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, men didn't talk to women on the street, and righteous people didn't talk to unrighteous people. And so by Jesus asking her a question, it exposed the need that he had. In fact, it put him in a position of needing what she had to offer. It actually affirmed her as a person, made her feel important, made her feel that that she was in a position, uh, uh, that, that made her feel more comfortable. Because people don't feel comfortable when you come out gangbusters saying, hey, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? And all of a sudden, it makes us real defensive. Gets people in a corner. But, but Jesus began to draw her out saying, hey, um, you know all about this water. Could you get me a drink? See, sometimes the best thing you can do is just start asking people questions. Get to know them. Get to know about their life and their family and their job and their interests. I, I, we have a neighbor a neighbor who had a bad thing happen in a church and doesn't go to church anymore. But they do come here now occasionally on Christmas Eve or Easter. Now I've gone over to their house many times and I've actually said, can I borrow your truck? I need to move something. Is that okay? And, and it, it allowed me a chance to go visit him. And as I visit him, I notice that in his garage he has a couple sewing machines and he's got all this leather work and garments hanging up. And he's into um, period clothing and weapons. So from the Revolutionary War, from the Civil War, from World War I, I mean, he, he, has, he has guns and he has rifles and he has hats and he has vests and all kinds of things that he actually makes Some He, he goes to libraries and finds patterns and goes home and, and cuts out material and he's got sewing machines and he makes all these things and it's led to some very fascinating conversations. I, I, I'm trying to lead him to Jesus, but I, I'm trying to show that I actually care about him as a person and what interests him and try to uncover what's happened in his life that's turned him away from the Lord. Just start by engaging with people around you. Start the conversation. But Jesus does more than that. In verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I think what we can learn from this is don't take the bait to Debate. Don't take the bait to debate. See Jesus, we shouldn't even be talking because there's a big fight going on between Jews and Samaritans, and 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 that should end our discussion right now. But Jesus says, "eh, we're not even going to go there." And I know that you'll have people in your life who will bring up controversial subjects. When you start to talk about church or Jesus, they'll bring up things like, "What do you believe about creation and evolution? Are you one of those people who believes the world's only four thousand years old when all the scientists believe it's?" thousands, if not millions years of years old? And what about the problem of good versus evil? How do you answer that? And, and what's, what's your position on, on sexuality and transgender and all that kind of stuff? You know, what is your position? And it's almost as if these things are all being thrown out there to stir up a debate. Now, when I went to college, I went to Bible college, and then I went to graduate school, I studied theology and apologetics. Theology is about is knowing what we believe Apologetics is knowing why we believe what we believe. And when I came through Bible college and and graduate school, I felt, man, I am armed to win the debate. I can talk to people about these issues, and I can just, just, just nail them. I can give them the reasons why we believe this and why this is wrong and why this is right and why we hold this position. But here's what I found. It's not only true in church. It's very true in marriage. Oftentimes, when you win the debate, you lose the relationship. I know very few people who go, wow, man, I'm, I, I just want what you want because you're, you know everything. And you're so forceful with your arguments. I'm attracted to that. <laughs> you know, I don't know, there's something within us that it doesn't work that way. And, and here's what I found. People, people who want to do the intellectual battle want to stay at the intellectual level when the real issue is right here. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ, which I believe is being made into a movie now. And while he was an atheist, he began to investigate all these claims that Jesus uh, made. And he started to realize, wow, the resurrection and that he's the son of God and all these things, they really seem to be true. But you know, that didn't convince him enough to become a Christian. What did convince him was when he started attending the church his wife attended and God began to soften his heart. It was a heart issue. And when his heart was in a position of surrender, that's when he accepted Jesus We've got to move from the intellectual argument down to the heart. So don't take the bait to debate. Down to verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Raise or arouse curiosity in the new life. Jesus begins talking about this thing called living water. Now, living water, as opposed to stagnant water, is water that's moving, water that's fresh, water that... That's, that's just good to drink. Water that's life-giving. And he's talking about this, this thing that, that, that she can have. And he's tantalizing her, saying that this is something bigger. Because if you drink this kind of water, this living water, it'll well up into eternal life. It'll satisfy you for a long, long time. See, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've come to believe that what Jesus has to offer surpasses anything offered anywhere. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, wrote an article that I thought was so great. In this article, he explained the tension Christians often feel with the culture. See, we're feeling it right now. We're not like the culture. And the more we become like the culture, the less we actually have to offer the culture. He says, if you go back in history, when the church began, the church offered a compelling alternative to what the culture did. See, in the days that the church started... In the Roman Empire, for example, um, people had many gods. It was pretty common that in every household they identified at least a god that they worshipped. And it was acceptable that you had your god and I had my god and we're all happy with our gods. And then Christians come along and say, hey, we have our god and he's above your god. In fact, he doesn't fit on the same shelf as your gods. He goes on the the top and the only shelf. So we won't bow down and, and we won't accept your gods as real gods because we believe there is only one god and his name is Jesus. Well that's offensive. You're intolerant. You're narrow-minded. They began to love people who the culture cast out, orphans and widows and the handicapped and the diseased. And they said, "We'll take them. We'll love them. They're made in God's image." They were generous where the culture was selfish. They thought more about other people than they did themselves. They welcomed immigrants when people had very strict lines of only only loving the people that were of their own race or their own gender, or their own economic class. People in those times where the church arose, it was very often for men to have sex with slaves, for men to have sex with other men, to have sex with multiple partners outside of their own marital um, relationship with their wife. Christians come along and say, you know what? We believe that God's design was that a man be married to a woman in a lifetime commitment, and that's the only place where intimacy will be practiced. Well, that's very narrow-minded. That's very different than the culture. But you know what? The church grew. And you know why it grew? Because people found that what was going on in the culture didn't truly satisfy. That somehow this narrow view was like a, a, a narrow-cut channel with a stream that's flowing, that's offering something. that Those people are happy. Those people are joyful. Those people have hope. What is it among them is because they found Jesus. And the same is true today. Don't be ashamed of the values we hold that are different than the culture. Don't feel like we need to change what the church believes in order to fit better into the culture the, because the culture is doing all these things and finding itself empty. And we must hold on to something that says, no, this is the way God designed it. And this, when you live this way, when you walk this way, when you believe this way, God's blessing is upon it and you feel a peace and a joy and, and, a, and a fulfillment in your life that you can't find anywhere else. My wife and I have watched this series with Morgan Freeman on National Geographic TV. Some of you may have seen it. It's called The Story of God. And in that, Morgan Freeman basically affirms all these other religions saying, you know, they're all kind of equal. They're all looking at God in a different way, but they're all the same. And so Hinduism and Taoism and Buddhism and all these different religions, they're all basically the same thing. And so so you could pick which one fits you best. But you know what? I I look at all the other religions in the world, and if Jesus was, was right when he said that that he is the source of living water, then we have to believe that unless someone has a relationship with Jesus, they're not truly fulfilled. So we need to raise that curiosity in the new life. And then let's go on to verses 16 to 18. Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband What you have just said is quite true. Jesus knew all about this woman's history already. And what he's trying to do is bring it up in her mind. So by asking her, are you married? And she says, no. He says, I I know the real story. You've been married five times. And you're actually living with a guy now. You're not even married to him. Now, Jesus could have jumped all over her and says, man, you're living in sin. You'll never find God if you live this way. But I think what Jesus was trying to point out to her was this. You keep dipping into the marriage well, thinking that if I just get married to the right guy, I'll have peace and happiness in my life. And so you go through one husband after another husband after another husband after another husband after another husband, husband, and it's not working. So now you decide that maybe the problem isn't men, it's marriage. So I'm just going to live with the man without the bonds of marriage, see if that's what makes me really happy. And Jesus is just telling her, why do you keep searching and searching and searching for something when I have living water for you? And you have people in your life who keep trying things, success, success. And, and fame, and relationships. And you and I know, and I love marriage. I'm a big fan of marriage. But marriage is not the answer to, to find the joy and peace and contentment in your life. In fact, it'll probably expose your lack of it. it. really will. You'll find out that having a husband or wife or that boyfriend or girlfriend isn't what gives you that lasting joy. It's Jesus. And when Jesus is in the middle of a marriage, it's a beautiful thing, but when he's not, it's an awful thing. You know what a question that you could ask someone I think is really revealing is to hear what they're doing in their life and just say, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? And let them begin to uh, reveal the pain and the disappointment within their life, and then you can say, do you know there's a better way? Do you know God, God had a better plan in mind? Let me tell you about that. Then finally, let's go to uh, verses 19 all the way through 26. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers. The father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It was all about Jesus all along. See, Jesus refused to enter into that debate again about the differences between Jews and Samaritans. and says, you know, that's for another day and that's something else. But right now, it's about the Messiah. It's about the one that God is planning to send to you. And she goes, I believe that. I believe he's coming. And I believe one of these days he's going to come and he's going to show us everything. And Jesus says, you don't have to wait for that day because it's right now and it's right here because I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Think of how powerful that was for that woman to realize God sent his son all the way from heaven to a well in Samaria to tell me he loves me? A woman who's failed so many times, a woman who's been rejected, who's been an outcast, he loves me? Do you know there's only one thing that will keep you out of heaven? You you know what it is, right? It's not sin. Don't answer sin. The reason I say that is because if if you say sin and you sin this week, you just jeopardize your status for heaven. So it's not sin. What is it? What is it that keeps us out of heaven? Well, Jesus was very clear. The one thing, and the only thing that will keep you out of heaven is lack of faith. Because if you believe in Jesus, the one thing that will get you into heaven, you will have eternal life. If you do not believe in the one that God has sent, you will not have eternal life. That is the deci- deciding issue. How do you respond to Jesus? Because we all sin even now, but we have one who forgives us of our sins That is Jesus. And that's why we keep the focus not on getting your life all right. We keep the focus on Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus because he loves you. God wants to start a fire in your heart that burns it allows you not to contain it to yourself but makes you want to share it with others. And that's what that woman did because if you go down just a few verses, it says in verse 28, then leaving her jar, her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. People want to see other people burn for Jesus. There's something magnetic about someone who's on fire for Jesus. That's what... Got me, a youth leader and some youth coaches who are in a fire for the Lord. And some of you have that fire. Some of you need to kindle that fire. I want to introduce you to a young man in our church who has that fire. His name's Keola. Keola is the uh, son of of Kanani, which many of you know, and Bill Delaney. And this guy has just been on a a wild journey. He, uh, some of you remember, a few years ago, Keola was with us and got on fire for the Lord. Made some bad choices. End up at the bottom again, Move back here where he felt like, I need to get back with the Lord, and this time he is just burning on fire for the Lord. So, Keola, welcome this morning. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> you told me when I shared with you the story that we were going to talk about today that you, you could identify or relate to the woman at the well. How so?
1: Well, I mean, all of us here can relate to the woman in the well. You know, we all put our faith in things, and with me, I put my faith in things like money, like my addictions, like relationships, like my friends, and I watched them one by one fail me. And uh, an example of that was my previous relationship with the mother of my child. I thought, you know, hey, she's going to fix me. She's going to make me better. And when that wasn't satisfying, I went back to the well, and I medicated myself with drugs, with alcohol, until I started to down spiral even further. And it was my parents that saved me. They brought me to the well, to that place where I would get that thirst um, quenched. I would get that satisfaction. They put me here. They brought me here to a church family that would love on me no matter how dark my past was. And that's what Jesus does for all of us.
0: That's awesome. Well, Keola, one of the things I've watched you, almost every Sunday you're telling me about people that have watched things you posted online about the church. Uh, You've introduced me to people you've invited to church and said you need to meet this other friend of mine that I brought to church. Man, um, what's been stirring within your heart with this kind of passion for reaching people?
1: Well, it's definitely due to my past. You know, I might not have had it as rocky as some people, but if any of you have seen my testimony or want to ask me about it, I definitely come from a rocky past. And I know some of you guys, again, have it harder out there than I do, but I also know that all of you guys out there hear that voice, too. And that voice is calling you to be the light. You know, before, when I sat with Darren on Friday when he asked me about this, I thought it was funny sitting here this morning and seeing that some of the things I was writing down prepared to speak to you guys about was the exact things he had in his sermon, to be the light for others. You guys have seen and been witnesses to other people being saved, if you haven't been saved, and you know what that feeling's like. And I have a fire for other people to have that in their life.
0: Well, what's been the effect of you reaching out to these people, these old friends of yours, um, even the casual friends on Facebook? Um, what, what's been the impact of you reaching out to them with Christ?
1: Well, I, do, I mean, I do get a satisfaction out of it, but it's more satisfying to watch, like, my best friend that's here. Um, he's been coming for about two months now, but just watching what God does in his life. A lot of us can testify to what God has done in our lives, and we all have testimonies. And our testimonies might affect just one person, but if it affects one person, that's one more person, that's one more victory. And I feel God has been calling me to bring people out of dark areas because I've been in those avenues, and people see me as genuine. And even though, you know, I might not be clean to what some people believe and and whatnot, we all make mistakes, and like Darren was saying, with sinning and things like that, you know, as long as you have a relationship with Christ— I love seeing that with other people. It melts my heart to see my friends here. It melts my heart to see somebody that I don't even know message me, how do you do it? And it's not me. If it was me, I wouldn't have to look in the mirror every day and say what's wrong with myself. It's God that does this for us.
0: That's yeah. awesome. <clears throat> well, one thing you shared with me is just, uh, almost a hunger of, of seeing what's God's future plan for me? Maybe I need to go off to to college or something. And it's a common thing where people will say, Pastor, I, I feel like a, I'm called to go to like a Bible college or learn scriptures. But uh, most, of us, most of us will never do that. In fact, I don't even know if you have to do that necessarily. So I don't want you to be discouraged that you've got to have a special degree to be a witness for Christ. In fact, Keola's doing it right now without a Bible degree. So Keola, what would you say to someone in this church that feels like, oh, I don't know if I can be an effective witness. Where do I start?
1: Well, I'm in a ministry called Celebrate Recovery, and and what what that ministry has taught me is to have that fire for other people, to be, if you guys don't know what an accountability partner is. The first step is getting into a relationship with a friend, with a family member, with your other half, and making a commitment with them and with God to have them here on Sundays so you guys can hear the lessons that God has for you. It might be Pastor Sam preaching. It might be it might be Pastor Dustin. It might be me standing up here. But God's going to be ministering directly to your heart. And if you're missing out on that, you're never going to see that. You need to invite people. You need to have other people come into the ministries. Whether you're having problems with your marriage and you know of the ministries, the church has re-engaged. It has Celebrate Recovery. There's a financial peace. You guys know of these ministries. The church the church has a kit, a toolkit that is not out to be borrowed or not to be lent. It's meant for you to take for the rest of your life and that gift is Jesus.
0: Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Keola. The church, our church wants to partner with you, and equip you for your mission. So my question for you today is, will you accept the mission that God has given you as a believer in Jesus Christ, to be a witness for Him, to share in ever-widening circles what God has done in Jesus Christ through you and for them? Are you willing to step up and say, God, show me where you want me to go. Lead me to the people you want me to speak. I'm going to put myself out there. And so today, I'm going to ask you to stand and say yes to this mission.